Don't let the heat get you down. I look forward to preaching at Church in the Bank. One of the reasons is because of you lovely people, but the other reason is because of the air conditioning. It's our one building we meet in that's air conditioned, but not tonight. I was once uh, up in Townsville visiting a church up there, and uh, I went in, it was about 42 degrees and about it felt like 110% humidity in Townsville on this day. And at their 10 a.m. service where I was, there was no air conditioning. I was just watching people pass out one after the other as the sermon started. And I said to the, the preacher after, I said, why don't you have air conditioning? He said, yeah, I took it to the parish council, but they said, our missionaries in Papua New Guinea don't have air conditioning, so why should we? I said, yeah, they don't have windows on their building either, but, you know, that, you've got those. But anyway, we don't have air conditioning tonight. Let's concentrate hard, even amongst the heat, and uh, be thankful for all the things we do have. But let's pray before we look at God's word. Our Heavenly Father... We uh, thank you for the great joy and privilege it is to meet together as your people. Uh, We thank you for the way we have this opportunity to encourage one another from your word. And we pray as we now turn to the book of Romans, that you'll help us not to be distracted by the heat uh, or anything else, but instead help us to concentrate on understanding it correctly. And we pray that your spirit might apply it to our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my uh, favourite people from church history is a guy called Augustine of Hippo. I just like saying his name, so that's one of the reasons I like him. Uh, You may or may not have heard of him. Who's heard of Augustine of Hippo? A few people. That's great. We've got a picture of him up on the screen, photo taken. There he is. I have no idea if that's what he looks like because he was around 386 AD uh, that he was around. And what happened was he was sitting in a garden in Milan in Italy where he was a university lecturer at the time and he had lived a pretty debauched life up until this point of his life Uh, and he had come to the point of deciding whether he wanted to repent of his sin, turn away from his sin and become a Christian. Uh, This was the point he'd reached in his life and so he's sitting there in the garden and the story goes there were some kids, some children playing in a garden sort of over the wall from where he was sitting and part of their game they were singing songs and all that sort of thing and part of the song they were singing was pick up and read they were singing I can't do it in Latin but that's what they were singing pick up and read pick up and read and he looked down and he'd been sitting with his friend and his friend had been reading a scroll which he'd left there and so he thought all right well I'll pick up and read this scroll I've got nothing better to do and as he read it then and there he decided to repent of his sin and become a Christian Uh, This is what he said. I'll read it out. It's up on the screen. It says, No further would I read, nor had I any need. Instantly a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Now, even though you mightn't have heard of him, uh, Augustine became the most important church leader and church thinker uh, for about a thousand years. The most important man after the Apostle Paul, basically, Uh, until the time of the Reformation, so 1,500 years later. That's how important he was. And, of course, you know what the scroll scroll was that he picked up and read. It was the book of Romans. It was the book of Romans that convicted him of his sin, the need to repent, and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Another story about another great man. Here's another picture. Uh, Do you know who this is? I always think Martin Luther, if he, you know, as he looks down from heaven... Must be disappointed that that's the picture everyone always puts up of Martin Luther. That's the one everyone remembers. Surely someone could have got him in a better light. But anyway, there you go. Uh, If you haven't heard of him, uh, he was an incredibly religious man, a monk who was living in Germany in the 1500s. And Martin Luther, despite his religion uh, and despite how religious he was, he was overcome with guilt and fear as he thought about God. 
Because Martin Luther's problem was, as he read the Bible, he was convicted that God is holy and God is righteous and God cannot allow sin to be in his presence. That was one thing he was convicted of. But as he looked at his own life, he knew he was not holy and he was not righteous and he knew he could not be good enough for God. And so Martin Luther had worked out there was only one possible outcome of this. A holy and righteous God who cannot allow sin to be in his presence and a sinner like him, Martin Luther worked out the only possible outcome was that God would judge him and judge all of humanity. See, he knew that even though he did all these religious things, he could never pay off the debt of his sin, if you like. And then Martin Luther decided that he would read and study the book of Romans. Uh, and Luther discovered the truth that sadly the church of his time had lost sight of. Luther discovered that he was actually right. He could not be good enough for God. But what he also discovered was that he didn't have to be good enough for God because he couldn't be and God had done something about it. You see, what Luther discovered was the most marvellous truth that the Bible has in it. That we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is all that matters. And Martin Luther then went on to become probably the most important Christian thinker since Augustine before him. And again, what was it that changed him? What was it that impacted him? It was the book of Romans. And I tell you these stories because I want to say there is no telling what happens when people start grappling with the book of Romans. When Augustine and Luther read it, it changed history. It changed Western civilization as we know it. And you see, on a smaller scale, though, the book of Romans has changed millions of people. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say this is actually the most important document ever written. I think it is the most important thing in the Bible, and that makes it the most important thing ever written. Now, it's sometimes not an easy book to understand. If you've been reading ahead, you might have been grappling with it and saying, oh, there's bits I don't understand. You're in good company if you think that. Because uh, you know how uh, Peter says in 2 Peter, some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand, but they're still worth grappling with. That's what Peter tells us. But if you put the hard work into understanding this book of Romans, as I said before, it is probably the most important thing you will ever read. Uh, because what it is, is the Apostle Paul driving to the heart of the Christian message. Uh, it's unlike every other letter in the New Testament. You know all the other letters like Galatians or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or anything like that? They're all written to a specific church dealing with a specific problem that Paul had become aware of in their church. So in Galatia, there were false teachers teaching a wrong gospel. So Galatians is written to answer that question. In, in Corinth, 1, 1 and 2 Corinthians, just that the church was hopeless. It was just terrible. And he just had to correct just about everything about what they did. Romans is different. See, Paul didn't know this church and he's writing to them to say, this is the gospel I preach. I've never been to you. I don't know anything much about you, but here I am setting out the Christian message. Here is what you need to know to be saved. Here is what you need to know to know God. If you want to know his forgiveness, if you want to have hope for eternity, here are the answers. That's why Martin Luther said, it will come up on the screen, he said this, he said, The book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. That's a massive rap, isn't it? It can never be read too often or studied too much. That's why if you've been with our church for any length of time, you know, hasn't Phil preached on Romans before, only a few years ago? That's because I say we're going to hear Romans every year 
But because I have to deal with some other books of the Bible, we get to it about one every five years. So there you go. We're looking at Romans, but that's how important this part of the Bible is. And that's what we're looking at this term. So let's get into it. Everyone open up your Bibles. Uh, anyone need a Bible? Put up your hand if you need a Bible and you can't see one. Because as I said, it's quite difficult to understand at points and you want to be grappling with it. So put up your hand and someone at the back will get you a Bible if you need one. But if you've got it there, turn to chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to start the letter together. So verse 1. It says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news. Now, I'm just going to stop there. We're often tempted to just jump over the start of a letter, aren't we? You know, even as you read the New Testament letters, often we're tempted to just jump to the next part of the letter. Say, yeah, that's, that's just the introduction. He's just introducing himself. But I want to tell you, this is actually really important. Because what he's doing here is he's setting out his credentials for these people. Remember I said he's never been to Rome. Someone else had founded this church. And what he's doing here is he's saying, this is why you should listen to me. This is who I am. If you know your New Testament well, you know that often Paul was criticised. He's still criticised today. But often people wanted to say, he's not a real apostle. Do you remember why that was? Remember when we studied the book of Acts? It's because he started off on the other team. He started off persecuting Christians. So all the time, Christians wanted, wanted to challenge whether he really had the authority he claimed. But here, he's setting out his credentials and he's saying three things about himself. I put them there on your outline. The first is, he says he is a slave of Christ Jesus. That is a massive thing to say, isn't it? To be a slave. We, most of us here are employees. If you are an employee, you work, you get a wage, and then you go home. And you're free after that to spend your money, to do whatever you want, however you want. That's the way it works being an employee. A slave is different. A slave never clocks off. A slave is the property of their master. And so Paul says here right up front, I am a slave and Jesus is my master. See, I have no rights. I have no time of my own. I have no possessions of my own. All I have, I have surrendered to the service of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. And straight away, there is our first challenge from the book of Romans, right there. Do we count ourselves as slaves of Christ Jesus? It's one of the great themes of the New Testament. We have been set free from slavery to sin in order to be, if you like, voluntary slaves of Jesus. That's what Paul is. Or are we more like employees who give Jesus some hours but sort of want to keep the rest for ourselves? I think it's worth asking that question because if we know Christ like Paul knows Christ, then I think we must count ourselves as slaves of Jesus with all that entails. Second point he makes there is I'm not just a slave. He says I'm also called as an apostle. An apostle is like an ambassador. It's someone who is sent by their master to speak on their behalf. Uh, This is really, really important to understand this. What Paul is saying here is, I speak for Jesus. When I speak, I represent Jesus. My words come with the authority of Jesus. We, we understand this. When the Australian ambassador to, the, to America meets with the president, he's there not to speak his own words, but to speak on behalf of his country, on behalf of our prime minister, if you like. He has the authority of the Australian government. Well, Paul is saying here, when I speak, I am writing on behalf of the king. That is Jesus. His words have the full authority of Jesus. Now, it's important to think about what that means. 
It means this is no casual letter. It means this isn't just a wise man's thoughts. What he writes here comes with the full authority of God. I wonder sometimes if we don't appreciate that when we read the Bible. I think we affirm it. We, you know, we have all sorts of words for the Bible. This is God's word we're reading tonight. Uh, this is the scriptures we're reading tonight. We, we affirm it in what we say, but I wonder if we really appreciate it. See, we can take God's word for granted. Uh, or worse still, we decide which bits we'll listen to. We say, that's too hard to understand. I won't put the effort into understanding it. I want to say, when we read the Bible, when it is read here at church, like Tim and Debbie did for us before, God is standing here speaking to us. Not in me or, or, or Tim or Debbie. But as that word is read, that is God speaking to us. Doesn't that change the way we treat it? Doesn't that change the way we respond to it? I think when we remember that, it changes our attitude more than a little. So Paul is a slave of Jesus. He's also an apostle of Jesus. And then sort of having set out his credentials, if you like, the third thing, his third point, is about the message he is bringing on behalf of King Jesus. And he says, look there at the end of verse 1, he says, I've been singled out for God's good news, or as we often say it, for God's gospel. And what is that good news? Well, this whole letter to the Romans spells it out, especially the first five chapters. But here in these first few, just three or four verses, he's really summarizing his message. This is the good news I'm bringing. And I want us to go through it carefully because it really is solid gold. So keep going with me, even in this heat. Keep your Bibles open and concentrating. The first point he makes is, it was a message promised long ago. Look at verse 2. It says, which he promised long ago, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, God's message of salvation, his good news, was not some afterthought. It was the culmination of all of his plans for all of history, for all of humanity from before the beginning of time. And so for over a thousand years before Christ came, the prophets who we have in the Old Testament spoke about this good news. And everything they talked about was focused in on this good news. And it is this news, look at verse 3, concerning his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God's good news that is from before the beginning of time, that was prophesied about in the scriptures, it all centers totally on this one person, his son, Jesus our Lord. What that means is you cannot know God, you cannot know God's forgiveness and grace apart from his son. It all, all boils down to Jesus, who, if we keep going, says there was a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, why does it tell us that? Why, you know, it's God's son and then suddenly it wants to tell us about his sort of human ancestry. Well, he's saying Jesus was a real human being, flesh and blood. But more than that, he was not just any human being. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the anointed king, descended from the great King David. And if that's not enough, look what else? Because look at verse 4, it says, And who has been declared to be the powerful Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness? If you're a Bible underliner, and you have a Bible other than one of the ones you've picked up from down the front here, underline that verse, because there is actually no more important verse in Scripture for understanding Jesus and what his resurrection achieves. See, when he rose from the dead, or more correctly, when God, by his Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, 
God was making a declaration to the world. He was saying, this man who was crucified, this man who you crucified, I am declaring him to be my son. More than that, I am declaring that he is the Lord of the universe. I am declaring that he is powerful and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Paul is saying, that is the good news I have. That's the news I share. It is about this man, Jesus, who is God's promised king. But more than that, he is God's son with God's seal of approval put on him, if you like, where God has declared him to be Lord of all. But Paul doesn't just sort of want to share that information. He's not just on about sharing information. He doesn't see his job as just sharing the good news with people. Uh, He wants a response. He wants you, and initially these Romans, to make a response. What does it mean for us that Jesus is God's king, the Lord of the universe? What does it mean uh, that, that he is God's son, the Lord of all? What response does that require from us? Just look at verse 5. He says, We have received grace and apostleship through him, that is Jesus, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name. Do you see what he wants? He wants all the nations, that is, every person on earth, that is, not just his Old Testament people, the Jews, He wants every person on this earth, whether they are Australian or Greek or Jewish or Portuguese or Chinese or whatever else we are, he wants all people to come to obey Jesus. That's what he wants. What other response could there be? You know, kings are there to be obeyed. That's why they're there. And if Jesus is the king of the universe, then every person from every nation owes him obedience. But the obedience Jesus demands is different to what we might think. Because just look there again. What is the key phrase there in verse 5? That's one for you to answer. Just testing that you're still there and looking at the Bible. What's the key phrase there in verse 5? The obedience of faith. Someone said that from somewhere up there who will win a prize later on. I don't know who it was, but there you go. Well done, Anita. Was it Anita? There you go. The obedience of faith. What does that mean? You know, what is this obedience of faith and how is it different to normal obedience? Well, it could mean that the one act of obedience that Jesus calls for is faith. The one thing he demands is that we believe in his name. It's like in John chapter 6 when people ask Jesus, Jesus, what are the works of God that you want us to do? Another way of saying, what do we have to do to be saved? What did Jesus say? It's in John 6, 29. I think we've got a slide about it, John. He said this. He said, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. See, they thought he was going to say that you do these religious things, that you go to the temple, that you give money to the poor, that you, you, you do all sorts of other things. He said, no, 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 there's only one thing. One thing, believe in the one he has sent. Sadly, you meet people, I meet them all the, all the time, who want to say, yeah, yeah, I'm okay with God, I'm obedient to God. And when you ask them what they mean, it's they say, I live, good li- I live a good life. I do acts of charity. Often, it's, I'm religious, I, I go to church, I do things like that. 
But the one act of obedience that God actually wants them to do, they won't do. They won't turn and believe in Jesus. They won't turn and believe that he is the Lord of the universe who died for their sins and rose again. I think that is the saddest thing in the world when people think they are being obedient to God, but then they won't do the one thing he actually does want. See, people who want to present their obedience to God as if that will save them, and they just won't do the thing he really wants, which is believe in his son. Another option for what Paul means here is that he wants to see an obedience that flows out of faith. There you go. Look, Ryan's back from, uh, from his honeymoon and he's forgotten to turn his phone off. It's all right, Ryan. Don't worry. <laughs> we might just take that distraction. Troy, why don't we open that door to see if we can let some fresh air in? I'm worried I'm going to short-circuit short this uh, microphone and electrocute myself, to tell you the truth. Well done, Troy. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the people walking down the street unless you want to invite them in. So there you go. All right, let's get back to it. There's another possible meaning of what he's saying here. Uh, it's that he's talking about an obedience that flows from faith or that flows out of faith. Uh, we're more used to the NIV translation, aren't we, before we move to this Holman translation. The NIV uh, pushes us in that direction. They translate it, the obedience that comes from faith. That's how they talk about it. And that would certainly fit with what Paul says elsewhere, especially later in the book of Romans, uh, that a true and living faith will always lead to a changed life. It will lead to obedience. But whichever way we take it, the point is, what is the response that the gospel demands? What is the response that the Lord Jesus desires more than anything else from all people? It is faith. That simple response of believing in him and trusting in him and his message for salvation and eternal life. And what we're going to see is that that is the big message of this book. That is the overwhelming message of this book. That no one can save themselves by being religious. No one can save themselves by being obedient. It is only faith in Jesus Christ that saves. That's the gospel Paul preaches in this book. Well, if we go on in the passage, and we're going to deal with that much, much more quickly now, uh, the rest of this part is sort of like a personal letter from Paul to the Romans. Uh, remember, the apostle had never been to Rome. He didn't know these Christians. Uh, he'd heard about them. And that's actually a great theme in the Bible. Have you noticed how often that comes up in the Bible? When people become Christians, people hear about it. That's so important. Because when people become Christians, they change. Their life changes, their priorities change, the things they talk about changes, and people notice it. And people had noticed this church growing in Rome. They'd noticed the change in people. And once Paul heard about it, what did he do? He started to pray for them. And in particular, he prayed that he might have the chance to go there and be an encouragement to them. Just look from verse 8. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. For God whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son is my witness that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I'm going to say I'd like to get to Rome one day. 
I've never been to Europe. I'd love to see the Colosseum. I'd love to see all those great things. If anyone's looking for something to give their money to, you could give your minister a trip to Rome. I'd love it. Uh, If you think about it, Paul wasn't trying to go to Rome as a tourist. Uh, If Paul ever got to the Colosseum, it wasn't to go around with a tour guide. He would have been chased around by a lion for the entertainment of the people there. Remember we looked at Acts last year? How did Paul eventually get to Rome? In chains, as a prisoner. He knew that when he went to Rome, it may well be the end of him. You see, he would have been uh, there in pain, not for joy. But you see, he doesn't want to go for himself. That's not the reason. Look at why he wants to go to Rome in verse 11. He says, For I want very much to see you, so I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, Paul didn't want to travel to broaden his mind or or as a way of experiencing God's good creation. Those are, if I can be a little bit frank, uh, really modern middle-class Christian justifications for travelling. Paul's motivation was purely the gospel and purely people. That's why he wanted to go to Rome. Sadly, a lot of people skip over these verses. They say, oh, this is just Paul sharing some of his own personal thoughts. They want to jump to the great doctrines of the book in chapters 2 and 3. But I think these verses just give us a wonderful insight into the godly example of Paul. See, I love the way that what gave him thankfulness and joy was what? Seeing people become Christians. Hearing about people's faith in Christ. And I love the way you see he prayed for people constantly, even those people he didn't really know. I love the way he wanted to build them up and he wanted to use the gifts God had given him to encourage them in their faith. But I also love what you just get a glimpse of here, his humility. You know, it would have been so easy as the apostle to say, oh yes, I'm going to come and impart my wisdom and my gifts to you. I'll be an encouragement to you. But you notice how Paul says, I want you to be an encouragement to me as well. See, what you see here is, I think, a great example of Christian fellowship, a great example of what someone looks like who is gripped by the gospel and who understands the priority of God's people. That's what this is. And perhaps the greatest insight into Paul and how he was gripped by that gospel is down in verse 14. Just look with me there. Because in verse 14, he gives the main reason why he wants to come come to Rome. Look with me, he says, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. See, the Apostle Paul felt an obligation. He felt a debt to tell people about Jesus. He felt he owed every person the right to hear the good news about Christ. Whatever their ethnic background, whether they were wise or foolish, everyone. Why did he feel that obligation? Well, firstly, as he said back in verse 1, Jesus had singled him out for that task. It was his God-given job. But there's more to it than that. See, I think it's the sort of obligation that a medical researcher might feel if they discovered the cure for cancer. You know, if you discovered the cure for cancer, how could you keep that to yourself? You couldn't. You would have to share it. If you have the answer to the world's problems, you need to share it with others. I remember reading about some researchers in America many, many years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, and they were doing a trial on the impact of aspirin on heart disease. 
Chris Samsarian at our uh, 10.30 congregation, who's a heart specialist, confirmed this for me this morning. He remembered it. And what they did was they gave 50% of these people with heart disease aspirin each day. And they gave 50%, the other 50% of the people, a placebo, you know, it's a sugar tablet. And they wanted to see, did it have an impact or not? And after about six months, they cancelled the trial. They ended the trial and they just put everyone on aspirin because they'd worked out it was having an impact and the researchers said we cannot have these people not having the tablets and just having a placebo because if we've got the answer to their problem we need to share it with them we have an obligation to the patients and I think that's what Paul felt here he had the good news of God he had the message of his son the Lord Jesus Christ who offers grace and forgiveness to the world and he thought how could I keep that to myself I feel that obligation. Do you feel that obligation? I pray you do. Because I think it's a sign you understand the gospel. Feeling that obligation. See, of course, we're not apostles. We haven't been specifically given a job by Jesus on the road to Damascus. We haven't been given that responsibility that Paul was given. But we know the same wonderful gospel that he knew. We know and believe in that same wonderful Lord. And knowing the gospel, knowing Jesus, must create an obligation in us to share it with others. But of course, the thing is, if you really know Jesus, it's no obligation at all. Do you notice how, when he gets to verse 15, look there, how his obligation has turned to eagerness there in verse 15. So if we know the wonderful message of God's forgiveness in Christ, how could we ever keep it to ourselves? It is our greatest joy to see someone else come to share it with us. If you have had the privilege of ever sitting with a person as they have read the scriptures or as you shared the gospel with them and they have moved from darkness to light, if you've ever had that privilege, if you've ever had that privilege of seeing someone go from not understanding the gospel to grasping the gospel and putting their trust in Jesus, you will know it is the greatest thing in the world. There is nothing like it. There is nothing better. And there can be nothing better because that is a person moving from hell to heaven right then and there. And I want to say... There is no greater thing than that. And that is why we must never stop praying for our non-Christian friends and family. If we grasp this obligation and this eagerness, it's why we push through the awkwardness barrier to tell people about Jesus, sometimes even when they don't want to hear about him. Uh, this is why we're always ready to give an answer for what we believe. This is why we invite people to church or to Christianity Explained or to anything like that. This is why we want to be equipped ourselves so that we can sit and read the Bible with someone and so introduce them to Jesus. This is why we're so excited to send the Turners to Tanzania because we say you have been gripped by the gospel and we want you to go and share that good news with people over there. And we don't do those things because God demands it. We don't do it out of obedience, if you like. We don't do them to impress God. We do them because, like Paul before us, we have come to trust in Jesus and we have come to know him and there is no greater thing that to do than to share that with other people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter to the Romans and we pray that this term uh, we might truly grapple with it and come to understand it better. And Father, we pray for this opening and we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul 
And we pray that like him, we might be gripped by that gospel, that wonderful news that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And we pray that we might be eager to share that good news with all who might hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.